This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. What's the worst that could happen? That seemed very far away. It also seemed that like if you worked at a bank, hopefully you would know about this. Like hopefully I'm not telling you anything new. But as we I think as we learned, like a bunch of dominoes can all fall and they'll fall a lot faster than we have seen banks fail in the past. This is my first liquidity failure. And, you know, I think in the savings and loan crisis, we had more liquidity failures. We had more interest rate mismatch failures. But this is the first bank I have seen fail because it ran out of money. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of FinTech Takes. Today, we have another episode of my favorite, one of the podcasts I do, Don't Tell All the Other Podcasts, Bank Nerd Corner, with my friend and the managing editor of Bank Director, Kia Hazlitt. Kia, thank you so much for being back. Hey, Alex, how are you? I am doing well. I'm doing well. I have been on the road traveling. I just got back from FinTech Meetup in Las Vegas, so tired in all the ways that someone coming back from Vegas after a conference is, but ready to go. I'm excited to record this. Our last Bank Nerd Corner episode that we recorded was, I kind of think it's like the last Bank Nerd Corner of a previous era, the post-SVB era. And so that has definitely broken my brain in a number of ways, which we're going to talk about. As promised, we're going to talk about SVB. It's the central focus of our episode. But before we get there, Kia, how are you? What's been going on with you? Well, I have been working diligently on our magazine proofing process. Silicon Valley Bank's failure happened basically after our magazine stories were written, but before (laughs) and during proofing. Oh, no. Very exciting that we got to make the timing worked out. Unlike our last recording of Bank Nerd Corner, we were able to insert new text into our stories and basically... Our graphic designer is now an expert on bank failures, given how much work (laughs) he had to do. I wrote a graphic for our market intelligence section that was about the discount window that needed to be almost like completely redone with a larger scale, as we'll Uh, talk about, because more than $100 billion has been borrowed from the discount window. So it? it was this both exceptionally good and bad timing. I can't recommend proofing a magazine during a banking crisis, but you definitely want to be publishing a banking magazine that mentions a banking crisis. So there are good and bad things. The other thing is that I have actually been diligently working on and have finally concluded some, you know, our team working on this intelligence report in depth. So this is like a 30-page intelligence report, and we are going to bring it to bank directors the next tech conference in Mm May. And I'm so excited about this because I we decided to ask a question in bank directors tech survey. So our tech survey goes out to a bunch of, you know, directors, executives and then also, you know, specifically any executive that does technology. Uh-huh. And we asked them a question that said, you know, what are you most worried about? And so they told us 45% are worried about using outdated technology, 48 we're worried that they have an inadequate understanding of the impact of emerging technologies. 35% were unable to, worried that they were unable to identify the solutions that they need. And so we wrote a report about that. We wrote a report that basically spoke to all these issues. And because there's no one journey that a bank goes on when they try to figure out how to use technology from third parties, from these new financial technology companies, we made it a choose your own adventure. So Uh the PDF online has live links. So 
when the text talks about something, so say in the strategy section, we mentioned due diligence. Uh -huh. There's a little sidebar that says, if you'd like to go read about due diligence, go click here and it'll just jump you to the next page in the report. Excellent. Now, obviously in the printed report, the gorgeous printed report, one of the best things about working for a magazine is the printed product. <laughs> That's just, you know, the, it's just listed on the side and you could go flip, but it's supposed to be read in a nonlinear fashion and that you can read the sections that you are most interested in or that are most relevant to your issues at the same time. This is and I was really excited about this because I got to write basically about all the topics I've been thinking about with fintechs, which is the regulatory interest in fintechs, the expectations regulators have for banks when they work with fintechs, some of the potential consequences that what can go wrong. And I've just been interested in how these fintech partnerships are making banking more complex, specifically at some of the smaller banks and how can smaller banks be really mindful as they, you know, enter this more complex environment. Awesome. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you so much for walking me through that. Personally, from like a creative writing perspective, I'm jealous of that project because that sounds, the choose your own adventure stuff in particular sounds super Awesome to me. So just a question for you then, in addition to banks, obviously, who are kind of the core audience for Bank Director, it sounds like something that fintech companies and folks who work at fintech companies would get a lot out of as well. Is that fair? I think so. I, you know, I think that if you're a fintech that wants to do more work with bank and be a better bank partner and understand the values and the concerns and the expectations of your bank partner, you might want to, you know, in addition to having every other conversation, you might want to just read the things that they're reading, familiarize with the yourself with the resources or the expectations that are laid out. You know, I'm a big speech reader. I'm a big reader of all these government reports. So there's, mm -hmm. you know, we have a we have our resources in the back of wh where we got all of our information from. And so I do think that, you know, fintechs may want to look at certain sections and just familiarize themselves and maybe even bring some of that language into the conversation to maybe more establish the shared culture and values and understanding a little faster. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. So where can people go to get the report? Where can they go to get more information about the conference that's coming up? Yeah, it'll be on Bank Director's website. We keep these reports in our research section. Hopefully we'll be promoting and plugging it if you'd like to join us in Tampa in May, you could also pick up a physical copy of this report and see the gorgeous illustration. It's a space themed. So that's, hey. you can also look at the pictures as you're going through that we, we've got some really lovely art with it. Oh, that's awesome. And I will say just, uh, this actually is a nice transition to what we want to talk about in the podcast, but I went to my first bank director conference in January. It was uh, Acquire or Be Acquired, which not many folks in fintech know about, but is like truly like an amazing conference. And so I can't recommend bank director events more highly. I, I will not be going to this one in May, but hopefully in future years we'll be able to, and uh, definitely something I'd recommend. With that, Kia, would you like to transition to really the only topic that we're ever going to talk about on this podcast? Yeah, sure. Let's talk a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank's failure. You know, since we recorded last time, there have been three banks that have closed two under as they were seized by regulators. I think the one that is catching most people's interest is Silicon Valley Bank for a variety of reasons. It feels both like the oldest story in banking, which is borrow short to lend log and but it feels also very novel and I think I think there's just going to be a lot of fertile ground 
for people like us and as well as bankers who are trying to figure out what can they learn and incorporate and then potentially regulators as they try to understand what the gaps were in supervision and enforcement to prevent this from happening. But yeah, go ahead, Alex. What did you think? Well, yeah. So I want to parse all of those things that you just said. And I think as we joked about at the beginning, like biggest bank nerd story in a decade plus and key and I missed it by a couple of weeks in terms of recording our last podcast, but I'm actually very happy to be able to return to it with the benefit of a little bit more time that's passed where I think we know a little more and we also know more about the things we still don't know, which is equally valuable. I will, and this is the tie back to the Acquire or Be Acquired conference, but Kia, credit to you, the first whisperings I heard about this sort of large-scale issue within banking, which is to say the unrealized losses sitting in bond portfolios at a lot of community and regional banks was when you and I had lunch at AOBA and you were answering a question for me, which was, why are no banks acquiring or be acquired right now? And uh, like, what's going on with that? And as you artfully described to me, and I asked a lot of dumb questions along the way, that there was this issue, this balance sheet issue sitting sort of lurking behind the scenes at a lot of these banks. Now, obviously, this was not in the ether or in the air really at all outside of AOBA and outside of these kind of private conversations. But you know, this, as we look back on the data now, has been a situation that's been brewing slowly for the last, certainly the last six months, probably more like a year in terms of when it really started to show up as significant losses in the footnotes of banks' balance sheets. And, you know, I think the tenor of what we talked about at the time was more, hey, if a bank was going to be acquired by another bank and it had all these losses, that would be another event that would force a mark-to-market which would make the bank on paper essentially worthless. That's why this isn't happening right now. We did not necessarily, at least I did not see the rapid deposit outflows being a triggering event for a lot of these problems. But first of all, credit to you for flagging this for me way before anybody else did. And what were sort of your initial takeaways when all of this kind of started to go down? So I started covering banking at the end of the great financial crisis in the Great Recession, and that was a credit-driven event. And then I worked in the industry for about five years in a zero interest rate environment. And so in 2017, 2018, we have interest rates slowly, slowly, slowly increasing. And that's when I first learned about what interest rate risk was, which (laughs) sweet summer child over here, because (laughs) banks had made so many mortgages in this zero interest rate environment post-financial crisis. And those mortgages were about to maybe be worth less. Uh And what would happen in a deal is that the buyer would put an interest rate mark on an otherwise performing loan to just indicate that it was below the market value currently. And so that's how I kind of learned about interest rate risk, this like purchase accounting. I think, you know, a lot of people sleep on bank bond books and I certainly was for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't when we think about banks, we don't think about them buying bonds. We think about them making loans. So Yeah. Yeah. And so when this rapidly changing interest rate environment happened again. So we went go from 3% in 2020 down to zero. And then we have additional liquidity. They kind of laid a lot of seeds down for a very specific type of environment. And that was all well and good because I think most people just failed to understand how fast interest rates would rise. Right. And so for me, when interest rates start rising really fast. And you you kind of notice this in the second quarter last year that unrealized losses, just the accounting mechanism of marking, of of like just figuring out what would be the market value of your available for sale. And then obviously you're held to maturity. You're not going to sell them, but they also have a value that can be calculated. 
I became aware of it because in a higher rate environment, sometimes deposits leave in search of higher rates. Right. Um, you know, this is the deposit beta thing. And I was thinking about how banks could deal with one really big deposit leaving if they can't sell their securities. So now it's like, okay, well, they got to find wholesale funds or funds outside the industry. You started seeing last year reports about banks raising broker deposits and kind of in response to that. And there's this real tension in banking about the price of money. So the price of these cheap deposits, should you raise deposits? How much do you have to raise deposits so they don't leave? How If they leave, how much are you going to have to replace them? Well, that's all fine and good, but we're having these conversations because banks can't sell their securities. They can't use the security to make an additional loan. They can't use the sell the securities to to sell if a deposit leaves. And then right. the other thing I learned was that you know the AOCI mark of the unrealized available for sale losses is deducted from tangible common equity TCE or capital ratio. And if you have negative TCE, you need to receive a waiver from the regulator to borrow federal home loan. So now we have a situation where you actually have a strong liquidity constraint. And it's like, okay, well, how many banks was that? In the third quarter, it was 30 banks, right. most of them private. One of them was up to $2 billion. You also have 500 banks that have net TCE of 5% or under, mm-hmm. which is less than well-capitalized status. Now, that's not the most, that's not the only capital ratio that exists. It's not the one regulators use. And I was hearing at the time, Regulators aren't really concerned about this if you have adequate liquidity. That's a big if, it turns out, right? Turns out, right. And so I wasn't thinking of any one particular bank, but I was looking at a variety of just moving parts mm-hmm. and a lot of assumptions and a lot of like, well, I hope nothing bad happens. I hope not all the money leaves at once. I hope that these banks that are aware of their rising unrealized losses have backup adequate liquidity. You know, I personally, because I'm not a bank investor, I don't care necessarily about any one quarterly metric. You know, I would maybe take a hit on NIM if it meant you got to keep money, right? We the, Kind of that short-term, long-term tension in banking. Totally. Um, and so for me, I mean, I remember talking about AOCI at Thanksgiving. Can you imagine what kind of a Thanksgiving guest I am? I am at my <laughs> friend's house. Someone is asking me about crypto. And I'm like, no, the real sleeper here is AOCI. It's true. Because- it's true. She was out there talking about it. <laughs> because, but it felt so like kind of alarmist to mm-hmm. talk about something like this. What's the worst that could happen? That seemed very far away. It also seemed that like if you worked at a bank, hopefully you would know about this. Like hopefully I'm not telling you anything new. But as we I think as we learned, like a bunch of dominoes can all fall and they'll fall a lot faster than we have seen banks fail in the past. This is my first liquidity failure. And, you know, I think in the savings and loan crisis, we had more liquidity failures. We had more interest rate mismatch failures. But this Mm -hmm. is the first bank I have seen fail because it ran out of money, which is very a weird thing to tell someone why the 16th largest bank fails in the country is because it runs out of money. And then you have to explain the all of the funding mechanics of a bank. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, I totally agree with everything you said. And I mean, I, I think it's worth just sort of thinking about now with the benefit of a little bit of hindsight, like what are the parts of this story? Because we we all know the basic mechanics of it now. They, thanks. Now we're all balance sheet um, experts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. And some of us like you much more credibly than others, but, you know, we're all somewhat up to speed with the basic mechanics. But, you know, I still think you're making a really good point about like a lot of the individual pieces for this were in place. And you were sort of like, oh, man, I hope they all don't just come together in exactly the right sort of cocktail mix, so to speak, of like bad things that could happen. And so I guess I'm curious for your perspective, like 
with the again with the benefit of hindsight big picture what are some of the like really big takeaways that you're still sort of like chewing on and kind of thinking about and like what does this mean for the future like what things are sort of top of your list for like you know now that the maybe immediate immediate crisis is over and we're sort of past that what are you still sort of gnawing on so Right now, I think specific to SVB, I have a lot of questions about some of the assumptions they were making when it came to deposit runoff, funding facilities, how fast they could get money in. I think one thing is that SVB, you know, probably up until March 8th was seen as a safe bank. Yeah. For several reasons, they had a lot of low cost deposits, which are seen in transactional accounts or operating accounts, and those are seen as safe. They had a low loan-to-deposit ratio, and I think in the last financial crisis, loans were our source of risk, and so we thought that, oh, well, they've got a lot of of liquidity there. We also looked at their bond book and saw a lot of safe government treasuries that just weren't making a lot of money. And so, you know, on this face, prima facie, this bank is safe. And so when you have an event where something that looks super, super safe turns out to be super risky, I am just really interested in how the bank kind of was ascertaining its risk and how it was assuaging risk. So, you know, maybe when you have a 50% loan deposit ratio, you don't think you need to get, you know, FHLB funding or, but then, you know, as we read about in the Wall Street Journal, they wanted a $20 billion line all at once. And that's a really big loan, right? Like that is a mid-sized community bank. And so a cliche in banking, like raise capital before you need it. Totally. And I think that that's really true. (laughs) Um, And get that collateral lined up for those funding lines before you need it, because everything moves a lot slower, I think, than I realized. So that's, I think, where I'm going is this failure is a chance for me to revisit a lot of the assumptions we make in banking that Uh indicate risk or safety. And I think we probably have to have a lot more curiosity and update those assumptions because we are in a different operating environment than we were in 2008 and 9. What about you? Yeah. I mean, what you just said makes all the sense in the world to me. I've been thinking a lot about that. I mean, one of the biggest takeaways I have from this whole thing is to your point, this isn't like a credit quality or asset issue. And it's such a hard thing to wrap your head around, right? Because to your point, and I guess this is kind of the whole, you always prepare to fight the last war rather than the next war kind of a thing in a sense. But it's like, we spent so much time over the last decade plus since the Great Recession, you know, sort of talking about how do we help sure ensure that banks take less risk, right? And like the way we were defining risk was, the sort of risk level of the assets, right? So like, are you mispricing these loans? Are you, you know, investing in these mortgage-backed securities where the underlying loans are are not solid? Like, what are these conscious risks that you as a business are taking because you are reaching for more profit maybe than is prudent given your role as a bank? And how do we mitigate that? How do we mitigate it with capital ratios? How do we mitigate it with, you know, sort of better accounting on these different, you know, sort of asset classes? And, you know, we've done all of these things to sort of make all of that safer, right? And I think a very notable fact when you sort of look around the banking ecosystem, broadly speaking, is like credit quality is fine, right? I mean, I know that, you know, Powell continues to raise rates and is, you know, trying to drive up the unemployment rate and tamp down inflation. Like, I get that we're maybe on the precipice of a changing credit cycle, but like, there aren't just a huge amount of bad loans anywhere out there. And these bonds that are sitting on the books, they're mostly treasury bills, right? And the risk that people took was, to your point, this very like subtle, 
very difficult to measure. I think in our prep for this, you sort of indicated that it was like a slow moving train wreck, right? And like, I actually think that's a really good analogy. I remember when I was, this is me, Alex's wacky analogy corner now, but I remember when I was in driver's ed and in Montana, we have a lot of trains. And so they spent a whole like week, I swear, in driver's ed, bringing in people from like the Railroad Safety Commission and people who were experts in like railroad safety. And they were talking all about like, how do you, you know, stop before train tracks? And like, what do you look for? And what do you listen for? And if your car gets stuck on train tracks, what do you do? And blah, blah, blah. And of course, like the answer is you get out of the car and you, you know, don't sit on the tracks. And I remember when they were talking about all of that, I was like, well, okay, like, how could you get your car stuck on train tracks, see a train coming and not just get out of the car, right? Like how common is it that people die in car accidents on railroad tracks? And I, I think I asked that question in, in driver's ed and they were like, actually, it's really, really, really common. That's why we're here for a whole week. And I'm like, well, how is that possible? And what they said that's always stuck with me is trains move much faster than you think that they are, right? And yeah. so like, it looks like this huge, long thing that's like moving very slowly. But the reality is it's basically like a skyscraper turned on its side that's moving with a tremendous amount of sort of sneaky momentum. And if it hits you or even if it kind of clips you, you're going to be in a really bad way. And all of a sudden it'll be too late. So what they said happens a lot is, People will get stuck on the train track for whatever reason, their engine idles out or, you know, whatever. They get trapped on the train track and they look at the train coming and they think, I've got time. You know, I've got time to get out of the way and they don't. And so that I think actually is a really good analogy for sort of what seemed to have happened with SVB. It's not like they took these insane risks. You know, they reached for a little bit more yield on slightly longer term treasuries. They, I think, definitely did have an attitude that was part and parcel of what made them such a good bank for startups is that they actually drank the Kool-Aid of startups in Silicon Valley. Like, I think they probably did believe that, you know, things are never going to go down and VC-backed companies are going to continue to be able to break in deposits. It doesn't matter what their burn rate is. Like, we'll be able to hang on to our deposit base. It's not unstable in the way that it turned out to be. So there were some sort of bad assumptions. But again, nothing that should have precipitated this level of crisis, except that, to your point, the train was coming and everyone sort of looked at it and went, oh, we have time to deal with that. You know, like our chief risk officer left in April of last year, but like, that's okay, we have time. You know, like we, it takes a little while to line up funding from, you know, these sort of last resort mechanisms. Oh, you know, we have time for that. And it's just like, they got to a point where they literally didn't have time. And if you look at the reporting on the timeline of how everything went down, they basically just got crunched for time. And then there yeah. was a really, really bad Thursday and by Friday, it was pretty evident that this just wasn't going to work and the FDIC had to step in. But like, it literally all came to a head on one day where they just didn't have enough time. So I guess that's kind of my biggest takeaway. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting because, you know, the the delta between how fast money can move out of a bank and how fast money can move into the bank is, I don't know if we need to give it a formal type of risk, like interest rate duration risk, but it's a timing risk, right? It's a timing lag. And that's probably something that needs to be modeled and built in for. I also think it's pretty easy to correct, but you have to be, you know, in the same way that I was talking about AOCI in Thanksgiving and just never really like played it out to its logical conclusions, yeah. you kind of have to take it really seriously. It? Um, I think about that, the balance sheet restructuring, because, you know, I've been making the point that a lot of banks are in this position, not just SVB. Not all banks are like SVB. Most banks have a higher loan to deposit ratio. They have a different 
depositor base, but uh-huh. they've got the losses. And when was the right time to restructure the balance sheet? Because it's probably not now. And it's probably uh-huh. not in this quarter or next quarter. But it's probably in the past. And what was preventing us at the time? What assumptions and decisions were we thinking about at the time that made us not take action at that point? And so now we, we're just still dealing with this. We're still on the train tracks, potentially. And now we're just trying to figure out how far that train's away. And if we can get our engines to restart to... Continuing your analogy. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I what that's been the broader conversation, right, is what other banks are in a similar-ish position and what do we know about their behavior? And I think that, you know, to torture this analogy absolutely to death. Awesome. The other thing, I, this is what we do on this podcast, is, you know, and I think you brought this up, again, in some of the prep that we did for this, but, like, there's an element of panic that's difficult to predict in all of this, right? So you're, you're trying to figure out, you know, how much time do we have, right? And you're trying to model these things and you're trying to build out very sort of logical forecasts for like, okay, what is our deposit runoff rate? What, how do we expect that to maybe change depending on the sort of conditions, the macroeconomic conditions that affect our depositors? In the case of SVB, it was how much money do we expect VC companies to be able to raise? And, you know, how much are VCs deploying? And that turned out to be probably a bad assumption that was built in there. But the other part of it that affects this that's really hard is when people start to act irrationally, it swamps our ability to predict these things and it it warps our ability to predict these things. And, you know, to torture the analogy just a bit more, it's like, you know, you think you have time to get off the tracks, but if you're trying to restart your engine and you give it too much gas because you're a little panicky and you flood the engine with too much gas because like it could have started in that moment, but you sort of fumbled it and now it's not going to start in that moment and now you're going to get hit by a car. Like that's again a thing that seemed to be a part of the story was our understanding of the psychology that drives these bank runs. And again, you know, as you referenced, um, liquidity crises are pretty rare in modern banking history. You have to go back to the savings and loan failures to really find a lot of good examples. It felt like we were very unprepared for that irrational component that affected these calculations. So I, I think even without that, probably SVB still might have been in some trouble. And I think there were some sort of bad risk management things that they did that maybe make them somewhat unique in a number of ways. But, you know, that's what I think the market is worrying about broadly is, you know, it's not that these other banks that are in a somewhat similar position couldn't have a problem. It's just, rationally speaking, it seems unlikely unless Uh all of their depositors do something crazy. And we just saw that happen in a way that you wouldn't have expected. So that to me is the other sort of known unknown here. Yeah, I don't fully understand how the March 8th press release about the balance sheet restructuring the capital raise translated into Mm -hmm. a deposit run. Those things don't have to be connected. So along the way, it seems like someone interpreted that release as being like, the bank is in trouble. Right. And I don't think that release was like, the bank is awesome and we're crushing it. But I interpreted, you know, from my perspective as a bank reporter who actually does think a lot of banks need to be restructuring their balance sheet Yeah, as like, actually like this is probably a, a good move and it sucks. And, you know, it's like take your medicine situation. And then totally. I fortunately do not follow a lot of VCs. So I miss the absolute pan- <laughs> panic that they interpreted this as. And I think there is some thought that like maybe they could have, Silicon Valley could have said some different things around this. As a bank reporter, I, I don't see the storytelling press release, but... And then once you go into a capital raise, there's a quiet period. So I don't know how much 
I think that that's true or useful here. But I do think people internalized some event as being really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I don't think it's irrational that people worry about their uninsured deposits. But there is definitely like a tipping point between everyone's rational actions becoming irrational and You know, maybe we should bring in some crowd crush analogies, right? When, like, how does the movement and action of one person wind up in being, like, a crowd crush situation, right? When everyone's fleeing for the exits or things like that, so. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's the classic, like, game theory, right, of everyone acted rationally in their own self-interest, but collectively, it has sort of undermined the whole thing. And I do think, as others have written, that you know, SVB, by the nature of VCs and their sort of herd-like mentalities, were definitely particularly susceptible to this. And I, I do think that when you compare SVB to, you know, random regional bank in Kansas, um, the dynamics among the depositors are different. Even if there's a large percentage of uninsured depositors, those folks are probably not all on Twitter all day, right? And they probably don't all read the diff by Bern Hobart and are seeing that, oh my God, Silicon Valley Bank is, you know, technically worthless on paper right now. And, you know, I, I think that in this particular case, I heard some sort of whisperings right around like February, like kind of early February of like, "Mm, what are you hearing about, you know, SVB? And so it was definitely a bit in the water supply. But, you know, these things, they kind of catch fire in ways that are unexpected. I I do think that, and this is something we're going to touch on in the next segment of the podcast, which I want to get to in a second, but the speed at which all of these things move and just sort of thinking about the infrastructure connected to all of this, I think is really, really important. And, you know, you're seeing this start to come up actually with, like banking as a service and fintech companies, right? And I, there was a report out about a week ago that said that a bunch of fintech companies that were sort of neobank competitors to SVB in terms of trying to bank startups have scooped up a lot of new business. A lot of them have actually introduced functionality designed to essentially sort of spread out uninsured deposits so that they can sort of functionally insure deposits up to a much greater level, uh, that's not anything new within the world of community banking, as we talked about before, right? Uh, Yeah, Yeah. as previously discussed, this is a problem that has existed well before the fintech revolution in 2010. Yes, yes. So actually, if you want to follow someone interesting on Twitter, uh, Jill Castilla has been talking a lot about their level of ability to ensure uninsured deposits through Intrify and through other mechanisms that they've set up. So I, I do think there is a definite way to solve this that fintech is sort of learning about for the first time, which is great. And I, I do think that like one thing that I didn't really think enough about before was, and I've, I've talked to some fintech founders about this actually, fintech companies or other VC-backed companies, tech companies, they are a little bit unusual in that the amount of money that they're dealing with and that they have in their bank account far outstrips usually the number of employees they have, particularly like finance employees. So like you can have a series, you know, A or a seed stage company that has millions or tens of millions of dollars in a bank account, but they don't have a CFO, right? And they right. certainly don't have like a treasurer. And so a line of criticism that I saw after SVB that I think is kind of unfair is like, how could all of these VC-backed companies have all of this uninsured money just sitting at SVB without diversifying that or figuring out ways to keep it safe? And I actually think you have to think about the level of financial sophistication that these tech-based, tech-backed, VC-backed startup companies have as being much more equivalent to like a 10-person like bakery or something. Like it's really more of a small business. They just happen to have a lot more money in the bank. So I think there are some things that make them a bit unique, but still pretty interesting. 
Well, and to your point about uninsured deposits, in poking around on this issue, the Basel III liquidity coverage ratio it models a deposit runoff of 10% for uninsured deposits. They are seen as like, quote unquote, less stable, but not much. It's not That's not a punitive amount. Mm. Um, I think, you know, most banks fail with a buyer, which means that most depositors just become customers of another bank. And so the issue isn't necessarily uninsured depositors. It's where all that money went. And then how big that bank got and how difficult it's been to find it a buyer or a new home. Isn't it? I think in general, it's great that people don't worry about their money. They don't have to. That's a feature, right? That's a feature of our banking system. It, it works. Everything's working if we're not worrying about our money. Nothing. It's Something's very bad if people are like having to do a lot of this research and they're not just like price maximizing or they're, right. you know, they're not like a treasurer who has, who's tasked with, with doing this. So, and again, one reason why I was really focused on unrealized losses in the securities portfolio is because at some of these banks, right, two big customers, I'm not talking about your startup customers, but two big customers in town, maybe the car dealership, maybe an insurance company, they just switch yeah. their accounts because they've got someone on their staff that knows they can get a higher rate. And so this is a problem that's all the banks need to be thinking about is how much money can we allow to run off in a 24-hour period before we run into solvency issues. And, you know, I am going to be really interested, at least in the bank space, if retail depositors become more important or if time deposits become more important, just money that's seen as, I don't want to say stable because, you know, time deposits aren't seen as stable, but just money that becomes, it's a lot easier to model that it's not going to leave for a set period of time. I was going to say, yeah, it's not so much stable as it is more understandable or predictable. Right. You Yeah. And it's calculable. So that X factor, that unknown unknown right now for banks is, for me, the uninsured depositors question. And then this weird task of helping your depositors understand that their money is safe. Uh, and you can't just say, trust us. It is. Wink, wink. You can't say the FDIC is going to bail us out because, you know, some of the regulators and members of Congress are are saying a different message. So you can just explain some of the mechanics. I don't I'd love for that to to work, but we just don't have a lot of time. And so I love what Jill's doing. I hope it works. I hope that it? it works in the future because when a crisis happens, you just basically have about 30 hours and you've got to go find funding. You don't you can't sit around and call every depositor and be like, actually, you don't have to play out your money because it's in a sweep account. So speaking of the other side of this, right? So we're talking a lot about depositors and money flowing out and how to predict that. There's also the question of getting money in when you need it to sort of stem these, you know, liquidity crises, which brings us to our wait what section of the podcast, which is where Kia and I uh, hone in on a particular area of sort of obscure banking trivia knowledge mechanics and sort of wonder, wait, well, like, what is that and how does it work and, and why does it work the way it does? And Kia, you have a good one for us this time. Yeah, I want to talk to you about the Fed's discount window. This came onto my radar because the discount window kind of competes, quote unquote, with FHLB wholesale funding. And FHLB funding has been in the news the last couple of quarters because of how banks like Silvergate used FHLB funding. And so these are both like funding lines. Like I think of them as like kind of lines of credit that banks can take out. They're big lines of credit where I yeah. as a bank can basically say, look, I need a line of credit to potentially stem some liquidity challenges or other things that I'm doing. And so I will either go to the FHLB or to the Fed, pledge collateral, correct? And then basically be able to line up funding to help with those things. 
the collateral kind of makes it a little bit of a pawn shop, not going to lie, when I when I read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. So I was reading about, you know, this usage of the FHLB and thinking to myself, well, why aren't banks using the discount window? And I was doing this, obviously, longer than two weeks ago, because now Feds banks are definitely using the discount window. I'm is very it? happy to report. And so it kind of made me go down a little bit of a rabbit hole. So the discount window is one of the oldest functions of the Federal Reserve. It I'm happy to report it used to be a window. And so there, you know, there's a picture. Yeah, in the notes, you can go look at the Federal Reserve Banks of St. Louis's window. I will I will take... post a picture of this on Twitter for everyone yeah. listening. So just follow me on Twitter and I'll I'll post it. That's amazing. Stuff in banking is really old, so there used to be windows. Okay. So that's what so that answers our first question. Why do they call it the window? Okay, so we know that. Yeah. And the discount window, it would be because it would take a discount on the note. Now Got it's it. in advance and they mm. do collateral. And so there's a little bit of like Funding the way that the loan was made has changed, and now it's called primary credit. Um, you don't like give the bank or the Federal Reserve a loan that's going to pay off X, and then they discount it. And so the borrowings are reported every week. And prior to March eighth, the borrowings had kind of got like ticked up a little bit, like ticked up to like five billion dollars. And Isn't? I was really encouraged to see that because. You know, we are in this rising rate environment. Deposits are leaving. I actually don't want banks to fail because they run out of money because the Federal Reserve is a really good lender. They've got a lot of money. The Fed's the like, lender of last resort, man. They have all the money they need. The Fed makes the money. Is they it? like and and so what you would do is you would like basically put collateral at the Fed, and that can be cash or it can be securities. And then the Fed would like discount it or like give it a haircut. And then you could get an advance on that. But and so there's just a lot of money, but people weren't using the Fed. They were using the FHLB because there's also a crazy stigma, which I think is so fascinating that there is like this thing that exists that could have like stopped, like basically potentially stopped Silicon Valley. We can argue if it would have been enough, um, if they would have, all the deposits would have left and then they just fail and, you know, the Fed has lent to them. But the stigma of the federal, the discount window is so great. And let me pull up some of the anecdotes that I came across that treasures, especially of, of the bigger banks, so definitely the Silicon Valley-sized bank, they really don't want to use it because they feel like they will have to inform their executives, so the you know C-level on the board, and they will also have to inform their supervisor, who also doesn't want them to use it. Now, at the Fed, the guy running the window wants you to use it. He's going to be like, excellent customer service. I read that he actually like the discount windows at the feds stay open later than fed wires. Mm. If you say, hey, we need to tap some money, we've got collateral lined up, they can just make an entry in that bank account and then you're good, right? But it's a line of credit. Yeah. And it's so easy if you already put this stuff in place. What makes banks stop accessing it is that, you know, I read many treasurers say that they have a written procedure that treats the discount window usage as a sign of a serious liquidity problem. Some of them don't have the authority to borrow without consulting an oversight committee at the board. The a, C, a treasurer noted that their CEO saw it as receiving a bailout. A treasurer of a U.S. bank was told that when he got the job, that if you ever do a borrowing from the discount window, there will be two phone calls. There's going to be a phone call from the president of the New York Fed to our CEO asking why the bank borrowed. 
And then there's going to be a phone call from HR telling you to clean out your desk. <laughs> that That is how strong the stigma is. And it yeah. seems like it's coming, you know, in the banking, it's being communicated from on top, but that the bankers are responding to something that they they feel like they're hearing from their examiners and from like their supervisors and you know, very reactionary to the financial crisis. Now, you can't use the discount window if you have a Campbell's rating of three or... What is that? Sorry. So explain that. Oh, <laughs> so Camels. Camels is the rating, that system that the regulators use. Okay. And let me look it up real fast. It's an acronym, so I want to make sure I say it correctly. It, he explains banking acronyms that we should all know, but sorry, we Sorry, I don't have this one memorized. No, no, no. You're it's good. Cap- so Camels stands for... Capital adequacy, assets, management capability, earnings, liquidity, and sensitivity. You couldn't remember that, Kia? Come on. I didn't want to... Me- it's it's like, it's all <laughs> the bank things, and then it spells the word camels, and it's really, like, I think it's a great acronym. And then it's on a scale of one to five, one being the best and five being the worst. Cam- so they, they look at it in order to determine what at a high level. Oh, if you... You have to have a camels three, so you okay. have to be rated... Like a good bank, basically by examiners. So it's like a it's like a passing ranking by a bank examiner. So if I have yeah, it's like a prime rating for your credit. Right. Okay. So if I have a rating that's below that, and I go to the Fed discount window, they're gonna say no. Yeah. There's like secondary credit that you can borrow from, but that's different. That's not discount window credit. Got it. Got it. So basically, what what I hear you saying then is the purpose of the Fed discount window is to be like, hey, we're here whenever you need us. And just just knock just on our it. window. We stay here. The guy's just yeah. like, it's like when you walk by. Phone this, never rings. Yeah. Like, and just... he's like, he's like leaning out the window going like, I'd love to talk to someone. Just like stop by. Like, I'm totally here for you whenever you need me. We're here to help. Yeah. 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 So, yes, so they're there. That that's what it's for. And it's not to your point about the camels rating, like it's not something that's available only to banks that are in severe distress. In fact, it's in fact not available to banks that are in distress. <laughs> it's not available to them. So, so the use of it, there should be no like indicator. But coming out of the Great Recession and being to your going to your earliest point about being in a low rate environment, I imagine that the stigma sort of comes from this idea that. You would only borrow what what kind of moron has a bank balance sheet where they have to borrow from the Fed discount window in a low rate environment mm-hmm. with all of these sort of capital ratios and other things that we have and how careful we're all being lending money. What kind of moron has to do that? So it's basically sort of become this like marker of if you do that, everyone's going to sort of raise their eyes, both from like kind of a Fed OCC sort of regulatory perspective, but also your C-suite, your board the committee that sort of manages these decisions. And everyone's going to basically think you don't know what the hell you're doing in your job, which is why people try really hard not to unless they absolutely have to. Is that fair? Yeah, it seems like, you know, from an outsider, there's a lot of signaling about using, not using the discount window, not needing to use the discount window, being healthy enough and being able to afford to pay for from the FHLBs. Yeah. And so, yeah, Betsy Duke said it's like borrowing money from your parents. (laughs) <laughs> which is very which is very funny to me. Yeah, totally. And there's been some efforts to try to from from the Federal Reserve to try to remove the stigma. Sure. If you recall at the start of the pandemic, they wanted they really encouraged banks to use the 
the discount window because again they just really did not want banks to fail because it everyone's pulling out We're their right money here. yeah yeah right and so the banks like the big five biggest banks like took out these like loans that they didn't need just to say that they were using it but there has been some usage of like it just examiner or like bank governor or board governor saying like actually we really do want you to use the discount window they made changes to the discount window to make it more competitive with the fhlb funding so there are times where because these are market-based funds there's times where discount window funding is cheaper than fhlb funding in part when when there's high demand for FHLB funding. And, you know, before March 8th, we actually saw just a, some banks actually using it and banks that maybe don't feel the stigma as big. Um, borrowing from the discount window is private, except for two years later, it's made public. So I guess there's a concern that, like, someone's going to write an unflattering article about just, you know, a depositor pulling out a bunch of money um, two years ago and you had to hit the discount window. And then when Silicon Valley failed, what we have learned is that they were unable to get a loan from the FHLB, and they asked the FHLB of San Francisco to transfer their collateral to the Federal Reserve of San Francisco. Sure. And again, in this liquidity crunch, in this deposit run, there was like some paperwork that needed to be filled out. Oh, no. And there needed to be like some collateral sign-offs. And then the thing that totally killed me was that the Fed actually runs a test transaction to like— and I just imagine that, you know, like, remember when you, like, switch banks? It's like, yeah. they put, like, a little test deposit to your yeah, account. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the federal government doing that? Yeah. Except it's $20 billion. We're just a little test transaction just to make sure this works. Yeah. Right. And so it looked like they moved some money from into, like, their trust, you know, custodial bank account. And mm -hmm. the custodial bank was trying to get the money from the Fed. And just because they had it all lined up. And the transaction clears on Friday morning. But the FDIC has actually already taken control of the bank. And so that is how close they got to getting a $20 billion line. Infusion of capital, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or fusion of cash. Or cash, for deposit, yeah. Liquidity, yeah. yeah. And so after, you know, one of the things that the bank regulators announced on Sunday, March 10th or March 12th, was that they would launch a second facility. So right. there's the discount window, but then they launched this other facility, which I love when the Fed does this because I know they're not under the same authorities, but they huh? seem like fake discount windows. Like if you don't want to borrow from the discount window, but you do want to borrow from the Fed, you can use this like other window. It's like, it's kind of like going back to the the parents analogy. It's like, you know, your dad Borrowed is really like, yeah, like your dad is like a hard ass about borrowing cash for, but like your aunt's just like, hey, so there's some money over here. If you ever need it, it's just like right here. You could just come get it whenever you want. It's like totally fine. Yeah. And this, this facility is the bank term funding program. So it's the aunt and they're doing <laughs> a cool thing, which yes. is that they are, you can pledge collateral Lateral. You can pledge securities, the high quality securities at face value. And so you don't have to take a discount because of the unrealized losses. Mm -hmm. Now, what we saw, so the discount window borrowings come out every week. We have seen borrowings go from about like $5 billion to $153 billion the week after Silicon Valley failed. And then this week, March 23rd, sorry, this is when we were recording, uh -huh. is a hundred billion. Uh. And then we saw for the bank term funding program in the first week. So from Sunday to Wednesday, borrowing was only 12 billion, which makes sense. A lot of collateral probably had to be signed up sure. for that. You know, whereas discount window probably had some collateral already ready to go. Uh -huh. And then by March 23rd, the borrowings were up by 53 billion. Wow. And, you know, this isn't to say that the federal home loan banks are not doing a lot of business right now. They are. I just think that a lot of banks are really, 
I think rightly they are prioritizing solvency over stigmas and they will figure it out later. This is not a time where I would hope our bank CEOs are telling treasurers, you know, do anything but this. I, I think all options need to be on the table. Yeah. Um, I think they should use this funding. I think they should use it when they're not in a crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it is a way to get some value out of these securities without having to actually sell them is to pledge them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's I sort of trying to think about like takeaways for the future, right? I mean, one is the new program that the Fed set up that values these securities at face value. You know, given that we're now dealing with this rising rate environment and we've sort of seen what happens when rates change quickly and banks are having to deploy deposits as, you know, into into bond portfolios, I do kind of wonder if that or some version of that needs to be more of like a standard part of the playbook moving forward. Because like kind of going to the core point here, the Fed's not trying to make money on all of this, right? Like the Fed is a lender of last reserve designed to make sure that banks don't fail. Like that, that is like kind of a core purpose of what we're doing here. And I think others have sort of written about this, but like I as a taxpayer don't really care, right? I just don't want like runs on every bank in the country to be happening simultaneously. Yeah, if you think the Fed lending out this money is expensive, just wait until there's a bunch of bank failures. Right, right, exactly. Like, like you just, pay for it now, you pay for it later. <laughs> exactly. So, like, go nuts. Like, I don't, I don't need. Like, I, I always find it kind of funny when like federal programs are like, oh, we actually made a profit on this. You know, like when they did capital injections with the banks. Yeah, and you're just like, oh, you know, it's like I don't care. Like, just stop the global financial system from collapsing, and we'll be good. Like, you don't have to make a profit on it. That's such a stupid consideration. So, I think like. The ability to consider assets at their, I want to say real value, right? Like the market value thing is so funny. I get that interest rates change, but like, like these are treasury bills. Like, like once they mature, they're going to pay out exactly, like we know what's going to happen. These aren't loans where there's something weird is going to happen. So I'm much more a fan of just value them the way they should be valued for the purposes of backstopping all of these banks. And I think the other thing that I've taken away from this and that Wall Street Journal article that you referenced about the uh, SVB's inability to line up funding quickly, I think that we have very good reasons for why the stock market turns off at a certain point and then turns back on. And we have very good reasons for why, like, if there's a panic in the market, like, one of the jobs of your stockbroker is to not return your call and to, like, not take your call because they're trying to, like, limit volatility. That's actually a service they're providing in that moment. But I think as we've seen with deposits, deposits don't work that way, right? Like, deposits can get withdrawn whenever. We have digital banking, we have 24-7 access to our funds. You know, wires are a little bit more restricted, but you can move a lot of money very quickly. We're moving towards real-time payments, right? And Fed now, where money's going to move even faster, sort of as a general general premise. So money can move out of deposit accounts very, very quickly. I would be very much in favor of whatever modernization needs to happen around the Fed discount window and these other facilities so that we can get money into these banks faster we don't have to do test transactions. We don't have to sign actual paperwork. You know, and I don't want to make the person who works in the Fed discount window stay up longer hours, but like it kind of feels like it needs to be a 24-7 sort of job. And so that to me, I think those are the two takeaways I have are worry less about like the mark-to-market accounting as it relates to the Fed and its function. And let's just make all this shit like move much faster and be more like real time. Yeah, I I actually had a lot of feelings. I have this long running rant about how the computers that process, you know, payments in this country, they get off work earlier than I do sometimes. <laughs> and 
seems like they got a lot of vacation days and yeah. they get weekends off. I reconcile my budget daily. And so I actually do notice the timing gap. It can be days, right? Is that it? from when I've recorded a transaction and to when my bank is like, yep, that's what we have too. Yeah. And so it's just so fascinating to think about how these slow these systems are and that in a crisis you can't just tell the computer like oh actually today you have to pull the all-nighter you're not going to get the shutdown we're not going to like close out of the program at 4 p.m the way we do all the other times totally and that you know i think we saw some of like you know t2 settlement with the s you know the sec and, and yeah. stock trading and that just the digital interfaces that customers have is just hours, days ahead of the actual back end. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't think we're moving towards slower money. Uh, and so there is just going to be probably some revisiting of regulators or, you know, some of these computers need to kind of get it together. It'll be interesting to see if real-time payment comes to the discount window, right? Or no, I don't mean to, I don't mean to question the Federal Reserve, but I kind of think it needs to come there first, right? Like, I mean, maybe let's pause on making it easier. Yeah, you'll get for... your discount window fast, fastest. Right? Than yeah, else. exactly. <laughs> like, like if I'm the Federal Reserve and I'm trying to think about which parts of my infrastructure do I want to speed up, like. I, you know, is it kind of a bummer that customers can't move money in real time and have to wait via ACH? Like, yeah, whatever. Is it annoying for businesses to have to wait? Yeah, you know, whatever. Is it really annoying and potentially catastrophically bad for banks to have to wait to get money out of the Federal Reserve? Like, to me, like, Maslow's hierarchy of needs would suggest, yeah, let's, like, modernize the Fed discount window first, then let's work our way up to getting to all of those other things. So I, I do think that is a big sort of large-scale takeaway I've had is we've maybe been prioritizing some infrastructure things wrong. With that, I want to end very quickly with an unanswerable question, as we always yes. do. And Hip. we won't spend a ton of time on this, but in the wake of SVB, I have seen a certain strain of thinking on fintech and banking Twitter and elsewhere that has basically sort of asked the question, do banks need to sort of choose between innovation and risk management? Like, can a bank be good at both of those things? And I find that question to be strange and difficult to parse and sort of, it's kind of breaking my brain, honestly, to think about it. But I, I guess, Kia, I wanted to ask you, because I know you've thought about this a little bit as well. Like, I don't even know really what we mean when we say innovation in that context. Like, aren't banks already innovative? Like, like walk me through how you sort of parse that question and that, I guess, dilemma that's being posed right now. Yeah, that question hurts my brain a lot, too. I think when you're a writer, you actually have to think about what words mean sometimes. And innovation... Yeah, that's part of the job, yes. Yeah, innovation is a loaded word, and it kind of needs to be... It kind of responds to the context. I think, you know, you and I are really interested in a very specific question, which is, what is a bank and what do banks do? This question actually, you know, to me, has innovation at its core, that... A bank is a, a specific type of company that is something and does something, okay. and the somethings can change. And so for me, that's how I think about bank innovation is how banks do the things that they do. And so innovation is not just like, for me, change plus transformation. It's not, you know, maybe it goes a little bit beyond like an evolution, but it leaves out a lot of things. And so when you talk about the conflation of innovation versus risk as if they are in tension with each other, uh -huh. innovation doesn't mean necessarily that you're like forsaking any risk management. There's always just like you're just making a lot of bets and 
you can innovate in a lot of different ways. Like innovation doesn't stipulate a type of technology needs to be used in innovation. It doesn't stipulate that you need to make a material bet that, you know, you know, go big or go home style bet. Uh-huh. And I think this is so interesting because, you know, I think banks are seen as not innovative because banks are old and it's an old type of business. And yeah. it can feel like there hasn't been a lot of change in banking. But I want to assure you as someone in her 30s, there has been a lot of change in banking. I'm happy to tell you that many of the technology and the delivery channels that we actively take for granted today as being like table stakes in banking, like were innovative. Totally. And I think that there's some crazy magic to make us forget that we lived in a world where like this stuff actually didn't exist. I learned with fascination how the credit card existed like the day before and the day after and then the decades after to make the credit card a product that I can take for gra- actively take it for granted. Right. The payment networks that I can actively forget about except when people fintech people want to reimagine payment networks or tell me like you know or tell me why the payment networks aren't innovative now, right? Uh-huh. Like and so there's this constant like building on our remains, our the archaeology sites, right? Mm-hmm. And so Yeah, there's all these like buried civilizations underneath us that were built on top of that we have no idea. Right, right. And so this has come up for me a lot when I think about charters in banking. Like I think it's like the old I called it the oldest, newest thing in banking. Mm-hmm. And I want to bring up to you, you know, for me, innovation, the example of banking as a service, right? So it's a hot topic. Sure. Banking as a service. What is the innovation here? Banking as a service was gift card technology and that or prepaid card technology. So it was like a distinct product that existed. Mm-hmm. So my question is, is the innovation starting with gift cards? Is that the innovation? Is it the understanding that gift card is actually just a representation of stored funds at a bank? Is it that it was reloadable? Is it that a reloadable gift card can serve as a proxy bank account and give someone access to money, insurance, and electronic payments? Is it that someone figured out a business model and how to charge someone from it? Is it that someone uh, figured out that there were companies that would want to issue these cards and to their customers and were willing to do the front-end work to provide the interface? Is it that someone learned how to take this entire business line and turn it into retail banking? Like, where is the innovation? Because I think we can all say right now, banking as a service is an innovative business, but it has its roots in something I think we all actively took for granted. And so I don't know, like all of those things have risk and I'm not saying anyone has like forsaken that risk. It also just sounds like a lot of work. What I just described to you sounds like a lot of work. Like it's easy to miss the innovation in this, Uh but- I just get really confused because I actually don't know what we're talking about whenever I hear this word of innovation and banking without kind of an application or a specific problem. So that's where my brain melts because I just start spiraling about what is men and and what where am I in history and who is the customer? What problem are we solving? Totally. Yeah. No, I mean, it's funny when you talk about it in this context, because for me, very, very simply, like innovation is just doing a thing you've been doing in a different way. Right. That's like very, very simply what innovation is. Right. And I think the companies basically go through two different sort of cycles and they they kind of repeat and incumbent companies that have been around for a while are usually better at one of these things than the other. New sort of disruptive companies are better at one of these things than the other. And that's like Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma in a nutshell. Right. And I think those two things are imagining different ways of doing a thing 
that might be better in some way. And it could be more efficient. It could be more enjoyable. It could be more profitable. Like whatever the thing is, you're imagining a different way of doing it. And a lot of that is like process-oriented thinking, right? Like today we do steps X, Y, and Z. But what if we did this in a slightly different order? What if we cut out one of those steps? Or what if we shrunk down the amount of time it takes for each one of those steps? And this is why I think innovation and technology are often conflated, but I don't think they're quite the same thing, right? Because technology gives us an opportunity to reimagine the way that we do things and streamline it or change the way that we do things. So technology is an enabler of innovation. It is not innovation, quote unquote, itself. So when people hit banks for not being innovative, I think a lot of times what they actually mean is they're not very good at technology. And that is a valid critique. And that's something that drives innovation, but it's not innovation itself. And to your point, you can see lots of examples throughout the history of banking of banks doing very innovative things, some of them aided by or fully enabled by technology, some of them not, some of them just process improvements for the way that banks operate. And then I think once you introduce a new sort of change to the way that you do things, then every company, and this is what startups go through, right? If fintech startups go through this all the time, then the process is, okay, how do we take this new thing we're doing and optimize that process so that it's repeatable, reliable, efficient, understandable, like all of the things you want, right? Because you don't want to work. I mean, this goes to your point about the card networks. The card networks introduced a very innovative idea, right? Bank AmeriCard in the late 50s and early 60s introduced this really interesting idea of a general purpose credit card. Great. But then they spent the next 30 years creating this huge mess, right? And if you've studied the history after Fresno, California of general purpose credit cards, you will know The credit cards were a nightmare, right? They were terrible. It was this cool new idea that solved a problem and was a new process, but they weren't interoperable. They didn't work well between banks. Settlement was a nightmare. Customers had no idea what was going on. And merchants were like this close to just dumping the whole concept because it was way too much work to deal with. Then what DHOC and Visa specialized in was coming in and saying, okay, this innovative thing that we introduced, that's great. We're not trying to like reinvent the wheel again. Now we're going to streamline everything. Now we're going to right. come up with processes for settlement and reconciliation and authorization of transactions and rules for managing disputes and all of these things. And if you think about Visa, like Visa is at its heart actually not that innovative of a company. What Visa is really good at is standardizing innovations and making them so that we don't recognize that they're innovative anymore. Now they just, we take them for granted to your point. We Think of them as this thing that's been around forever. And of course, it just works. That's not innovation. That is, I don't know what the word for that is, right? That's like operational excellence. That's taking innovation and making it something that just disappears into our lives. So when I hear that banks aren't innovative, I think, or that innovation is like contrasted with risk management, what I hear is that anytime you change the way something works, you are introducing the risk of something breaking just by the nature of you've changed the way that it works, right? And what you're basically saying is there's going to be a period of time after we change the way this works where we're going to be trying to become operationally excellent at that new thing. And there's going to be some things that go wrong. There's going to be some bumps along the road. That to me is the type of risk management that we're talking about when we talk about innovation. But I don't think that's the same way that we're thinking about it in this context that I've seen post-SVB. I think the way that the people are talking about it now is like, oh, banks should never, ever change processes or change the way that we do things. And that's so contrary to the entire history of financial services. Going back to you know a long, long time ago, Like that's just not how banks work. We're always trying to find new processes or new ways of doing things. 
And then we try to standardize those processes and do them a little better. I think where fintech gets into the equation and makes this a little harder is you have fintech companies that are pressing on banks. And it's almost like we split out this innovation operational excellence cycle between two different companies. And so now you have a set of companies that sort of specialize in operational excellence and a different set of companies that specialize in innovation. And Ed Key, as we've talked about this podcast before, like the collision of banking and fintech companies, whether it's banks acquiring fintech companies or fintech companies buying banks and getting their own charters and sort of transitioning into becoming banks, really like the next phase of financial services is blending those two different groups together so that we can bring innovation and operational excellence together. And so I feel like if you wanted to tell a large-scale story about what the last, what, 20 years of financial services has been, it's been the divergence of those two functions into two different sets of companies and the tension between those. But, you know, innovation and, and risk management are not, to me, violently opposed to each other. Yeah, I think you make an interesting point about that. I think sometimes people, when they say innovation, they mean technology. And it kind of goes back to the specificity. Um, I also think that, you know, innovation without purpose is not, I would say, like net positive right now. So it's, it's when, useless. When you, yeah. When you make the point about Visa not being innovative, but just being a standard setting, that's really valuable in banking. It's hugely that is, valuable. And that if, you know, it makes innovation accessible. It makes innovation, you know, banal almost. And then my third point is hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, if we don't have continuous banking crisis is I've actually wanted to write a little bit out the idea of change management, which is a regulatory expectation that when a bank undergoes changes, that change has to be measured, managed, and overseen. And it's basically the opposite of move fast and break things because in banking, they don't want things to break. And I'm fascinated by something we've seen that I came across in my The Next Tech research for the report is that change management lapses are increasing in banks. And it Uh. is that as banks are engaging in more initiatives or working with more partners to increase their services or or things like that, that they are lapsing on the change management processes that they should be using to ensure that those changes go according to plan and everything is managed. And so maybe when we talk about operational excellence, the way to get from innovation to operational excellence is via a change management process that is, is good, right? Is you know, just we should just be taking it for granted. So uh, I think we also see notice innovation when it fails, and we seem to not notice innovation when it's widely accepted and taken for granted. Totally. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. But the best innovations are ones that just sort of slip quietly into our lives and we're just like, oh my God, you know, I can't believe I ever lived without this. I mean, to use a totally silly example that has nothing to do with banking, but like I'm recording this podcast with AirPods, right? And like, I remember a movie featuring Ryan Reynolds that was like now, like a long time ago, where he was walking around with the headphones that didn't have wires attached to him. And like, there was a whole like Reddit thread of like, are those real? Where can we buy those? Those look incredible. And it was like this very futuristic like thing. And now we all have AirPods and we walk around and it's like, we complain about the fact that like, oh, occasionally they don't sync up correctly or like whatever happens, but like they're incredible and they just sort of slid into our lives without us even really realizing it. So I do think there are ways to sort of manage that change management process, as you're saying, and just make it so that these innovations get introduced seamlessly and a lot of times sort of incrementally, right? I mean, like the other thing about innovation is I think we think about it in terms of like 
giant leap forwards and these paradigm shifting breakthroughs. And, right. you know, I mean, like we're kind of going through this with AI and generative AI right now. And it's like, oh my God, look at all these amazing things. And sometimes that's what innovation looks like. But a lot of times it is more incremental. And I think that in particularly in financial services where we do have a mandate not to break things because when things break, bad stuff happens, as we've witnessed recently, maybe more incremental innovation should be something that we applaud rather than are sort of scornful of. So with that, Kia, we've we've done an extra long episode. I I think we got to most of the stuff we wanted to talk about. Any any last meat on the bone or comments you want to make before we wrap up? No, it's just a plea to all banks to not fail the week this podcast goes live Yes, so that we don't look comically just out of date, just not paying attention, not a care. Thank you so much for recording that extra interview. I could not believe the week that this podcast went live. It was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah, I was just like, you know, we always have to turn into the skid and just be like, enjoy this last little bit of sanity before we get into this new world that we're living times. in. The before times. The before times, exactly. So anyway, yes, I agree with Kia's plea. Please don't melt down in any like really novel or, you know, fascinating ways. But Kia, this has been very uh, clarifying for my own thinking. So I appreciate you taking the time and we'll do this again next month. All right. See ya. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love fintech takes, please tell a friend.